If we're in Romans chapter 3, I want to read six verses to you. Um, Rob didn't just read those randomly. I'll tell you what we're going to do in just a few minutes. But I did want to consider David in light of the gospel this morning. And so I want to read Romans 3.23 down through verse 26. And then we will turn once again to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Paul writes in verse 23 of chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God or the patience of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we already are filled with thanksgiving for our time that we've had this morning in prayer and briefly in song. And Father, now our hearts are filled with joy, I trust, for the time that we have in your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would remind the depth of our soul that this is the word of our Lord. These are the words that you have written. You may have used the hands and the pens of men, but these words come from the heart of God. And so, Father, help us to treasure these words and apply ourselves diligently to the hearing and the believing of these words as well. And I pray that the Spirit of God would take the words of God and change the child of God into the image of God in a greater way. So help us, Father, I pray. Anoint my words, I pray, and anoint our hearing. All for your name's sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I realize that we find ourselves in the same passages that we were in just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, from that time, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I didn't finish. I think it was about halfway through my notes and I realized that I was going to run way over. And so I just found a place to land that plane. And I realized once again this morning that I don't have time to finish. I get excited when I'm writing this and I just go way too long in my notes. And then I get up here and I go, I can't finish all that. So... While we were singing, I decided the title of next week's sermon, and I figured out where I was going to cut this thing off. So there you go. But since we're on top of the mountain, and I told you that a few weeks ago, since we're on the top of the mountain of the Word of God, I thought it would be good for us to stay another week on top of the mountain. I, I spent so many weeks bringing you down into the bottom of the valley, trying to explain to you the depth of your depravity. I think I owe you a few weeks on just resting on top of the mountain in the sunshine. But nonetheless, I had this thought as I was pondering all these verses this week, or really just these six, what Paul must have thought when he wrote this down. Now, if you teach or if you preach, you know exactly what I'm talking about, or if you write papers or if you're in school, you write these things down, and what you're trying to communicate is so important to you. The words that you pick matter. And so it's going to this never-ending editing process of, no, nah, this needs to be said differently, this can be said in a better way, and... And I, I can't imagine that Paul was any different, even though he was filled with the Spirit of God. I don't imagine that he just sat down with one copy, didn't bother to read it, and just stuck it, whatever, in the mail, so to speak, and sent it off to Rome. I would imagine that he read it 
over and over again trying to make sure that he was being faithful to everything that he understood from the Old Testament and bringing into the New Testament. So when Paul sits down and, and writes these one, two, three, four verses here that we've read this morning, I'm convinced that Paul is absolutely blown away by what he just read. Because through the power of the Spirit, Paul, in, in a way that culminates and explains the entire work of God from Genesis 3. That was my first thought this week. And then I thought, no, that's wrong. This is the culmination and explanation of everything God has done since He said, let there be light. And Paul's able to put this in four verses. Don't you wish that I could bring things down to that short of frame? But these are some of the most absolutely wonderful words. And I know I say that often, but really, guys, these are some of the most wonderful words that you'll ever find. This is the explanation of everything God has done on our behalf. Now, I know that we went through much of this just a couple of weeks ago, but you know how it's always easier to understand something in terms of someone else. When it's applied to someone else, we have a tendency to be able to see it just a little bit better. So what I wanted to do this morning is use David as an example, and I feel justified in doing that because Paul's about to use Abraham as an example of faith. And so I thought it would be useful for us to use David's sin as an illustration for those who have been justified as a gift by His grace. And so I want us to just reflect on the great sin of David and how the gospel applies itself to David's sin and how David finds himself justified solely as a gift, solely by grace. And through understanding his sin and his justification, hopefully you can better apply that to yourselves with some thought. But we were with John last week and had the opportunity to go to church with him and so thankful. The boy said that it's just a very faithful and, and good church and we were very thankful to find it just like he described. And the pastor got up and he did a great job handling the Word of God. But he's the one that put David on my heart and some of the things that he said. And so I want us to consider some of those things in light of the Gospel. But he referred to David as the exemplar man, which means the perfect example of a man. And if you consider this in Scripture, you could certainly make that argument with, as far as Scripture goes, really as far as the history of humanity goes, if you just want to be fair and you want to pick a man that stands head and shoulders above every other man, you're probably going to have to go with David. If he's not one, he's certainly in the top three, okay? Let's just think about his life so I can back up that statement. Even from a small boy, he was anointed by God as king. Now certainly he didn't immediately take the throne upon himself, but even as a boy, God sends Samuel the prophet to anoint him as the king of Israel. Now, we all go around with puffed out chests and, and swollen heads as boys sometimes when we accomplish things. But I, none of us have ever experienced something so grand or glorious as being anointed by the Lord as king over all of his people at such a young age. And the wonderful things that happened to him at a young age don't stop there because you'll remember... As a boy, he went trotting out onto the battlefield because the whole nation, including King Saul, had been swallowed up in, in a war with the Philistines. And when David gets out to the battlefield, all of Israel is standing on the sidelines, trembling with fear, because you'll remember the Philistines had a giant named who? Goliath. 
And Scripture records every day Goliath would walk out into the middle of the battlefield and curse and mock the nation of Israel and just beg one of them, would somebody please come out here and fight me? And of course, all of Israel standing on the side, no man wants to go out there because they know he's going to die right in the middle of the battlefield in front of everybody. So they're just standing there having conversations about what in the world we're going to do about this. And here comes the boy trotting out on the battlefield. And he walks down there and he's talking to his brothers. What in the world are y'all doing? Why aren't you fighting? And then Goliath walks out and David hears what Goliath says. And David's like, who's going to go? I mean, there's your challenge. He just called you out. Aren't one of you guys going to go out? And his brothers are like, shut up, boy. This has nothing to do with you. And David's like, fine. If y'all not going to go, I'm going to go. I'll walk out there and fight the guy. So get the picture of this. The king, who himself is afraid to go, pulls this boy over and tries to put armor on this young man in order to send him out in battle because he can't find a man to go fight this giant. And so they put their armor on him and David's like, man, are you kidding me? This stuff don't even fit. Take this stuff off. I can't fight like this. You can imagine armor dragging the ground and he can't probably even hold up part of it because it's so heavy. He's just like, give me some rocks. This is no problem. This is not even my battle. This is God's people. Give me a few stones. And he shoves them in his pocket and he goes marching out on the battlefield, a boy with a sling, and the giant starts cursing at him telling him, come on out here, I'll just feed you to the birds, boy, laughing at him. David puts one of those rocks in a sling, lets fire, and it hits the giant right between the eyes. You know the story. And he falls down dead. The rest of those men are standing on the sidelines in absolute disbelief as the boy walks out to the battlefield, picks up a sword that he can barely carry by this time, and he cuts the giant's heads off, and he holds it back up to the sideline. I mean, if we're going to pick a man... I'm probably going to pick this man because this is some more man, even as a boy. And then as a young man, Saul puts him in charge of much of his army, if not all of his army. And so David's history begins. He is some more man slinging a sword. And he killed a great many men. In fact, he killed so many men that the young girls who swooned over him wrote a song. And part of the phrase, and I know you're familiar with it too, went something like this. Saul, who was the king, has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. You know that song is mentioned three times in Scripture? Now how would you like to be Saul here in that song? Over and over. And not just does it say they sang it, but twice in the recording of the words of that song, they danced to it. So you can imagine all these giggly girls who had never been married just dancing around, singing these songs about David and it getting on the king's last nerve. Now listen, there's a, there's a particular song that I have in my life that if I hear, I can't stand it. It gets on my last nerve. Those words get stuck in my mind and it doesn't go away for days. It's a country song and I'll never tell you what it is because you'll text me that song over and over and over again and drive me absolutely crazy. But you can imagine how Saul felt when they started singing this. Not again. Are you kidding me? You're going to sing about this boy just because he's so good with a sword? And the women are like, absolutely. This a good looking fella and he can kill anybody he wants. I'm going to sing about him, right? And so this goes on and on and on. So as far as the greatest warrior who ever lived, 
the argument can certainly be made that David was the greatest warrior that ever fought for Israel. But it doesn't stop there. Not only was he the greatest warrior, he was the greatest, arguably, almost undeniably, worshiper of God who ever lived. You do realize that Bible of yours is absolutely filled with some of David's prayers and certainly many of David's love songs to the Lord that we read and sometimes that we sing, at least part of those words that we sing. David wrote much of the Psalms, most of them David penned. Now how about that? Not only is he a man among men, but he was also a great man among the women because he could write the love songs and, and play the musical instruments and sing those songs. And so as far as a warrior, yes, but as far as a worshiper, without question. And since we still read the Psalms, you have to understand that he was one of the greatest worship leaders that God had ever raised up. But I can't imagine a, a, a more wonderful title than this do you remember how God referred to David? As a man after my own heart. How would you like that? What did God say about you? Ah, oh, He said that I was a man after His own heart. Now that's huge, guys. And I'll give you one more thing to consider about David. Do you remember what they called Jerusalem? That was the capital of the nation of Israel? It was called the city of David. So if you want to talk about a great man, if you want to talk about a warrior, if you want to talk about a worshiper, if you want to talk about a worship leader, if you want to talk about somebody who's been recognized by God as a man after God's own heart, you have to consider David. Now let me ask you this. When we turn to Romans 3 and we read these words, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me ask you this. Does that apply to David? And all of a sudden, everything good that I just said is swept off the table and you've got one thing in your mind because you know exactly what David did. It's absolutely horrible. It is unthinkable what David did. He took another man's wife. He slept with her. And then when he found out she was pregnant, he had her husband killed on the battlefield. He had a plan that when they drew too close to the wall while fighting their enemies... All the other men would suddenly just back away, leaving Uriah standing there at the foot of the wall. And all they did was draw back on the arrow and shoot an arrow and drop him dead right on the spot. And they called back and told David, the deed is done. And he said, good enough. You did what I wanted you to do because he was trying to cover up what he had done. Stole the man's wife, had a baby, covered it up by killing the guy. My, how that great man has fallen so greatly, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even David. Now let me ask you some questions about this. Number one, what was the punishment for David's sin? And by the way, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, this was high-handed sin. Because David knew all well that what he was doing was dead wrong. Did David know that adultery was wrong according to the law of God. Well, yes, if you know the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. David knew that very well, and he did it anyway. But this is what the law says in regard to adultery in Leviticus 21 and verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
That's it. There's no sacrifice. There's no remediation. There's no way out of this. If you commit adultery, you die. They carry you out the edge of the city. They pick up the stones and they stone you to death for that. And I think it would be a great idea if we still did that, to be frank with you. I know that I had rather be stoned to death than do that to my wife. But that was the law of God. And you don't even need the law of God to know that was wrong. But David understood what the law of God said and he understood its punishment. But there's one more than that. Did David know that murder was wrong? Thou shalt not commit murder. That's in the Ten Commandments too. David knew it and David did it all the while knowing and he did it anyway. What's the punishment for that? Leviticus 24, 17. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. No sacrifice. Nothing to offer. Nothing to bring. Nothing on the table for you. If you commit adultery, you die. If you commit murder, you die. That was God's law. So what is David's punishment according to the law? Death. What did David deserve? Death. Now in a few weeks, we're going to come to Romans 6, chapter 23. And I think probably many of you have that memorized. What's the punishment for all sin according to the Scriptures? For the wages of sin is death. That's the punishment in the law. All sin deserves death. You break one law, you broke the whole law. But David just kind of really violated two of the great commandments of God, and he did it in a high-handed manner. And without question, David ought to die. And you need to understand that as far as the community of Israel understanding what David did, they knew what was about to happen to their king. And to be frank with you, most of those men would have said, and he deserves it, buddy. He's got it coming to him without question. But do you remember when Rob read this morning those passages, what David said in response to Nathan. He really didn't even open his mouth, at least not so far as offering an excuse. David didn't offer any excuses. He didn't say, well, Lord, you know, a man walks out on his balcony in broad daylight and there's a woman down there taking a shower in front of everything. You know, I can see her from up so high. You know, are you just going to solely blame me for this thing? I mean, I know I sent her to the house, but Lord, we had a relationship. Are you really just going to drop all this on me? It's not all my fault. You go find a man, Lord, that's not going to tarry on the balcony for just a few minutes as this thing's going on in front of you. He didn't say any of that. He didn't offer an excuse. He didn't point the finger at somebody else. He didn't say, this woman that you put here with me like Adam did. No excuses whatsoever. Rob read it to us this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. Y'all know how we struggle sometimes when we know we need to say something to somebody because of the sin in their life, right? It's a family member. We just struggle and struggle. And many of you say, yeah, they're doing this. Should I say something? I'm like, yeah, you need to say something. Or if it's, uh, I said a family member, or if it's a friend, in either case, you're like, man, they've got this going on. I really don't need to know if I, I need to say something because it's high-handed sin against God and they need to understand what they're doing. And I really feel like I need to say something and y'all struggle and y'all struggle and y'all struggle. How would you like to be Nathan? Nathan, go to the king. Are you kidding me, Lord? Yeah, I want you to go to the king and I want you to point your finger in his face and I want you to tell him he sinned against me. How would you like to do that? 
And being king, how are you going to receive that? Are you going to say, well, you, you can get out of my face or I'll take your head clean off your shoulders. I mean, there's no one he's accountable to. You do understand that. David answered to no one as king except himself. But thankfully, he knew that there was someone higher than himself, and that was God. And so David's only response was, I have sinned against the Lord. But then David had time to rest in that. Think about that for a while. And even in resting and contemplating what just happened in his life, he still doesn't offer an excuse. This is what David confesses to us in Psalms 51. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Two things David said there. Number one, he interpreted his sin as evil. Have you ever done that? It's absolutely evil. The things that I do in my life that are contrary to the Word of God are evil. David understood that and he communicated that to the Lord. The second thing that I find absolutely remarkable is what David says there at the last. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He in effect told the Lord, I know my deeds deserve death and if you put me to death, you've done nothing but what's right. You will be justified, O oh God, if you put me to death. Now let me ask you this, now that we've looked at David just briefly considering that, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, have you applied that to your own soul? I mean, really? Because y'all know, when we talk to people about the sin in their life, what is the first thing that they do? They offer some sort of excuse. They divert all the attention away from themselves, and they won't face the reality of the things that they do are absolutely evil. You try to communicate that thought. Don't just try to communicate sin. Try to communicate that their sin is evil and they'll start shaking their head no. They don't accept that. Oh, I may have done some things wrong, but you're, you're going a bit too far if you're going to call sin evil in my life. It's just really, it's more gray than it is evil. But that's not what's communicated in Scripture. They are evil. And so until you realize your guilt before the Lord, until you stop offering excuses, and until you stop making comparisons with other people, you will still and always be short of the glory of the Lord. You have to come to terms with your own sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the Bible tries to take you there. David had Nathan the prophet. Do you realize you've had over... You've had... More than 40 prophets preach that word to you if you have a copy of the Word of God. Because there's more than 40 men who pen the Bible and all of them preach the same message, right? Not only that, you've had the Lord Jesus Himself come and say, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, right? But most men will not do that. They will refuse to do that. Now back to David... How in the world was David going to get out of this predicament 
because he had violated the law of God. He understood the law of God and he knew that he would have to be rescued from the penalty because what he had done was clear and what God required was clear. And so David knew something would have to happen outside of himself. So let me ask you this. How could God clear David and not violate his own law? How could God get David out of the predicament he was in and us still consider God to be righteous? You remember the last words that Rob read to us in, in verse 13? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. How would you like to have been standing there in that moment? Would you have praised God for His righteousness? I don't think you would have. I think you would have struggled at that point. How would you like to be in your eyes standing there in the midst of all that? What do you mean forgive? What do you mean wipe away that sin? Do you not understand, Lord, that He put me to death in order to take my wife? How in the world can you forgive this man for that sin and I'm supposed to worship you for being righteous? I don't see that. And frankly, at this point in the story, we can't see that. All we see is God not punishing David for his sin. And the only reason we're forgiven is, or we're given is that he has been forgiven. And our immediate thought is that's not the law. What, does he get special attention? Is it because he's king? Are you a God who shows favoritism now? Oh, just because you like David. Oh, I see how this gospel works now. He's done all these mighty and wonderful things. And so these good things have stacked up over here. And as far as his sin, adultery, well, okay, that's one. Well, murder, that's two. But we're still not up here because he's killed thousands for your glory, God. He's written hundreds of songs in worship to you. I can see how this gospel works, God. You just factor in the good and the bad, and if we can outweigh the bad with the good, then we're accepted. That's not much of a gospel at all. That's good works, God, and I, I don't accept that. And that's a really good argument, by the way. But we know that's not the end of the story. You're still in Romans 3, but look at verse 21. And for David to hear these words, you have to understand what joy filled his heart. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. David's like, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because my salvation cannot come from the law. I violated the law, and the law has put me to death. And then Paul gets on down to verse 23. 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only thing David can say is, Amen. And then Paul rolls into verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace. And David's like, no way. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's the good news, David. It's apart from the law. You have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. But now being justified as a gift by His grace you are made righteous in the sight of God. So this is what I want to answer in the time that, that we have remaining because Paul answers these questions for us because they're very difficult when you gain the perspective of David. Number one, what did God do? And I'm going to give you three words. 
And then secondly, how did God do it? And I'm going to give you two words. What did God do to get David out of this mess? And then how did God do it? And I'll give you two words because that's what Paul does. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up. This little phrase here in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace, again, had to be the greatest three words David could ever hear. Now the word justified, and I realize that we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but it's just too good. This word is used 35 times in the New Testament and 15 in Romans. Do you know why it's used 15 times in Romans, almost half? Because justified is what the gospel accomplishes for us. And so you're going to find justification all over Romans because Romans is about the gospel. This is what God does on our behalf. Now the root word for this word is, is actually the word righteous, and that makes perfect sense to us, especially if you've been coming on Wednesday night. The word justified is root, is righteousness, because when God declares us justified in His sight, God is declaring us righteous. God is saying, in effect, that we are without guilt. We are righteous in His sight. Now, if you go looking through this word, or watching this word as you walk through the New Testament, it's translated usually in three different ways, justified most often, but also the idea of freed. If we had translated this being freed by a gift, David would have really understood that. Because as he stands before God, having committed adultery, you do understand that he's standing on the gallows with the rope around his neck. The, the executioner is holding on the lever and about to pull the floor out from under David and he be hanged. And all, the all of a sudden he hears the words from God, you've been set free. And David would go, I like that translation. I've been freed. And the rope comes off the neck and off the plank that he walks and he's been set freed. But the word is also translated vindicated. Vindicated. Guilt removed. And what God did for David, listen, made no actual change in David. It was just God's declaration that concerned David. He didn't do anything in David. David didn't produce anything for justification. God simply declared him righteous in his sight. And if you remember, and if you have your Bibles open, look back up in verse 19. This is where you are. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That's David. When Nathan comes to speak to him to convince him of his sin, and he understood that David's mouth is closed. I'm done. I'm, I'm about to be executed for my sin. And he understands that all well. And he also understands that the only place that he has to look, or he has to look, is to the one who has condemned him. Because that's the only hope that he has. And so when David hears these words in verse 24 that Paul writes, being justified is a gift by His grace, David understands that all too well. Let me talk about this second word, being justified as a gift. This word gift is also a very unique word that David would have greatly appreciated. The word is Dorian, if you're taking notes, D-O-R-E-A-N, Dorian. And most oftentimes it's translated gift, but sometimes it's translated free or freely. 
And again, I'll take you back to David because he would have really liked that word. Being set free freely. Because he knew he had nothing to offer God to get him out of his situation. Twice in the book of Revelations, it's translated without cost. In other words, David was set free without cost to David. But the most unique translation of the word Dorian is found in John 15, 25. I don't want you to turn there, but if, you, if you're one of those that take notes and go back through, I want you to go and read this passage. I'll read it to you this morning. This is how this word is translated here, and it's the Lord Jesus speaking. And the Lord says, quoting the Old Testament, They have done this to fulfill the word that stands written in the law. They hated me without a cause. In other words, Dorian, we often translate it gift, is also translated without a cause. Now, I hope you to understand that. Let me ask you this. For what reason did they have to justify their hatred toward Jesus Christ? Did they have a reason? Not one. What had Christ done to deserve our hatred? Not one thing. It was absolutely without cause. Why did God justify David? There was not one reason that could be found within David himself. There was no cause for his justification. The reality was it, it was death and death alone. There was no reason on the table for David to be set free. Do you understand that? Wait, he was the greatest warrior. That's not a reason. Wait a minute, he was the greatest worshiper. Not a reason. Didn't he write like a lot of the Old Testament? Yeah, that's not a reason. I thought God said David was a man after his own heart. That's not a reason because the law has been violated. There is no cause to justify David in this case. It's simply a gift. An absolutely undeserved gift, which brings us to this last word, being justified as a gift by His grace. So God says the same thing, makes the same point in two different ways. Justification is as a gift, and justification is by grace and grace alone. Period. You know, and we say this so often, the undeserved merit or favor of God, and yet in the depth of your fallen heart, you really think you have reasons for God not to condemn you. You do realize there has been an amazing effort put forth by fallen humanity to change this idea of grace. I mean, you look at the Roman Catholic Church, they say we're saved by grace, but do you realize that you have to earn that grace? You're like, wait a minute. If I earn grace, it's not really grace. Exactly. And do you realize every other religion in the world, you're trying to earn the favor of God and you cannot look at David. What's he going to do to get out of his situation? There's absolutely nothing he can do. If he's saved, he will be saved purely by the grace of God. There is no other way. There is no other alternative. There's nothing He can bring. There's nothing He can do. It will be by grace and grace alone. 
So we're justified as a gift by His grace, which begs the question, who in the world is given this wonderful gift of grace? To whom is this grace extended? Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's absolutely no distinction. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you are. You can be a king or you can be a slave. Doesn't matter. You're justified in the same way. You can be a rich man. You can be a poor man. Doesn't matter. You're justified in the same way. You can be a white man. You can be a black man. Doesn't matter. You're justified in the same way. You could have committed adultery and murdered the woman's husband and you're justified in exactly the same way as a gift by His grace. There is no other way. Now I want to talk about this for just a second and we'll move to the, the last two words. But I want to back into this phrase for all those who believe because we've so misunderstood this business of faith, and I think I said it a couple of weeks ago, we've turned faith into a work. We present this gift of salvation, especially from Baptist churches, most often in a very poor way. We present it in this way. God's offering you a gift. Here it is. Come get the gift, right? And you will be forgiven and you will go to heaven. And so what we do is we put the emphasis on the gift rather than the giver. And it's misplaced. The emphasis doesn't go on the gift. The emphasis goes on the one who's established this for us. And if you want to better understand this, pay attention come Christmas time when your kids get up in the morning and they go open their gifts. And then somewhere in the middle of that, you're going to go, oh man, I think I've blown it again. It's all about the gifts for them. And then you start trying to back up and make it about the Lord Jesus Christ and why we're actually doing this thing and your kids are absolutely lost in the gift. And we do exactly the same thing when we begin to talk about salvation. We look at the gift rather than the one who has taken hold of this gift on our behalf. We actually think that there's something that we can do and we do that, then we think we justify ourselves. Let me give you an example of David, because I know this is hard, hard to understand. Go back to the scene. Nathan's standing there. David's standing there. Nathan pronounces the judgment on David. You sinned against the Lord. What are you going to do at that moment with David? Hey, David, bow your head, brother. I'll get you out of this. I want you to say the words that I'm about to say to you and you'll get out of this deal. And David will look at you like you're an absolute idiot. I'm not getting out of this. You don't understand. I violated the law of God and I know full well what the judgment is for what I have done. It's death. I've got no time. No, David, just listen to me. If you just trot down that aisle, if you'll hop in them waters, all this will go away. And you realize David would have gladly done that to get himself out of that position. And then we preach the gospel that way. There's nothing you can do to get yourself out of the death that's coming to you because of your sin. I don't care how they presented it. You're not coming forward and taking hold of some gift. It's not about that. You better do what David did. And he fixed his eyes on the only one who could save him. And that same one was the one who had condemned him. 
You see, we get the cart before the horse. And it doesn't come that way. You know who will receive that gift of salvation? Everyone who has fixed their eyes upon Jesus. That's it. And if you get that backwards, you're going to find yourself still up under the law and the wrath of God. Because you'll do. Hey, I've told you where you're at. I've told you you're guilty in your sin. And you're just like, well, tell me what i got to do. I'll do it. I'm not being stubborn. What do you want me to do? Oh, yeah, well, let me give you something to do. You just gladly trot up, up here and do that. I mean, who wants to walk through that? David understood that. Hey, there's nothing I can do. I'm dead. I'm a dead man walking. And then he hears these words from God. You've been forgiven. Where'd that come from? Absolute grace. Absolute grace. So how did God do this? Again, I tell you, God gives us two words to explain how he was justified, how David was justified. And, and both of these words are absolutely steeped in Old Testament religion. Okay, first word, look at, and I'll speed up a little bit. Look at verse 24, the second part. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption. This is one of the most wonderful words we've been talking about on Wednesday night. The word is latruo. And they really had powerful illustrations for this word, redemption. The first word came from the culture of slave ownership. And the slave had a price of redemption. If a slave could pay the price, he would be set free. Or that price was also likened if you wanted to purchase a slave away from someone else, you paid the price for that individual and they became yours. And it was known in this as the Latrue or that ransom price, okay? But a, a more powerful illustration, again, came from their law. In fact, it came from the greatest day in the history of the nation. In Exodus 11, you'll remember God is pouring out plagues on the nation of Israel. Do you remember the last plague? Death of the firstborn. And this is what God decreed. Every firstborn of Pharaoh... Every firstborn of slave girl, every firstborn even of the cattle is going to die. That was the plague. The plague of the death of the firstborn. And so when he brings the children of Israel out, this is what he says to them in a couple of chapters later. Now, now when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanite and he swore to you and your fathers and he gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast and the males, they all belong to the Lord. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. And then he says this, And it shall be when your son asks you in the time to come, What are you doing, Dad? And you'll respond with a powerful hand, The Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. In other words, God was going to use the plague to paint a picture of what Jesus would do on Calvary. So you guys think about it. Many of you have sons. Your firstborn son belonged to the Lord. And God says, you're going to have to pay a ransom price for that boy. And he will be returned to you. And so that's what all would do. They would pay that redemption or that ransom price. And he did that in order that they would understand when Jesus came and he said these words, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That we would understand the gospel. So from the culture to the religion, they understood very powerfully what this word meant.
God was paying a ransom price for their soul. And David began to understand the gospel in this. God's about to ransom me out of this deal. Now, I know you understand the, the price of ransom. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ. What was your ransom price? The blood of God's only Son. Second word. Notice again verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This is, in my opinion, the greatest word that you'll find in the gospel. And not only did they have constant example about this in the Old Testament, but they had a special day that happened once a year, and it was called the Day of Atonement. And I know many of you are familiar with this. It's the annual day. The priest would come in. He'd offer sacrifices for the nations to cleanse them of their sin. An animal would be offered and its life would be given in order to atone for the sins of the people. A life for a life. It was a substitute. It was a death in order that they might have life. They had broke the law. But God had given them the animal sacrifices in order that the law might be fulfilled. Someone would die in order that they might go free. It was a sacrifice that would satisfy the law of God. And it was a sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God. And so when Christ comes as our redemption price, He is our propitiation. He's the one that dies in our place. You do realize... This is the part that makes the gospel so offensive. This is the part that people hate. This is the part that those who profess Christ that don't know Christ, this is the part that they cannot stand. Do you know what they call this? Cosmic child abuse. They refuse to accept the fact that God would put to death His only Son in order that we might live. You see, they don't understand the law of God. They don't understand the Word of God. They don't understand the character of God. And they sure don't understand the love of God because we were in a terrible situation. The rope's around our necks again. We're standing in the gallows. All He's got to do is pull the lever and the floor drops out beneath us and God declares us righteous. And as we walk off the gallows, His Son walks on. He hangs a rope around His neck and He pulls the lever and the Son of God dies in your place. See, David didn't get that. No one got that. They just trusted that God would do something. Otherwise, if God didn't do something, God can't be just because you can't set David free for what he did. He ought to die. And God says, oh, there will be a death. But it won't be David's death. Notice with me, Again, verse 24, and, and I'll finish with this. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption or the ransom price which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth publicly as a substitutionary death in His blood through faith. And then notice this last phrase, and I think you'll understand this perfectly. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in the forbearance or patience of God, 
He passed over the sins previously committed, I would add, even by David. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that God would be both just, because He has condemned sin, as well as the justifier, because He has saved the one who has faith in Jesus. God rescues David. God rescues His own righteousness. Because what David did that day was paid for on Calvary. And everything that you and I have ever done in our lives, if we are looking to the One who was given for us, all that's removed as well in the death of Christ. The greatest news in the whole of the Bible. And it's really absolutely unthinkable because we've all done things. We know we've done them. And some of them are so bad that we hide them from one another. We don't want to talk about them. We only mention them and, and maybe there's one or two people in our life that we've ever told. And some things, I imagine there's some things you, you've never told anybody because they're just, they're just too horrible to think about. And you know within the depth of your soul that all that we've done warrants our death. That's the only just thing to do. And rather than giving you something to do, because what fool would not want something to do to get themselves out of this situation? Rather than giving you something to do, I just simply point you to the one who has done something on your behalf. You just look at him. David would be swatting at us trying to get us to shut up because his eyes are fixed on God, but he's like, he's the only one that can do anything about this. You, you just be quiet. And I'm the same way. I can't give you anything to do. There's nothing to do. But if you'll fix your eyes on Jesus, He's the author and perfecter of your faith. And He's the one that has gone before you. And He's the one who has died in your place. And I can promise you this, if you've fixed your eyes on Him, if you've trusted in Him, God's got a gift for you you'll never believe. You won't believe it till you see it. Because you'll find yourself standing before Him. And you'll understand the overwhelming guilt of all the sin in your life. And God will look at you and say, no, nah, you're justified. It's a gift. And it comes solely to you by my grace. Let's pray.